If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 16 as we continue on in the Gospel of John this morning. This morning we'll be in John chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. John chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing that he is telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, What is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus then knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain, because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. And that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. Now, as we consider these verses this morning, we'll do so under under two main headings. First, joy in the Lord. And second, ask in Jesus' name. Joy in the Lord, ask in Jesus' name. So first of all, joy in the Lord. Jesus had been speaking to his disciples in this discourse here in these chapters of John that we've been looking at in recent weeks and months. And he's been talking about his departure, going away from them. So he says here in verse 16, a little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Now this is somewhat of a a baffling statement. It was baffling to the disciples as can be seen there in verses 17 and 18. They We're saying to one another, what is this thing that he is telling us? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus' words here have likewise been baffling to interpreters of this passage. What are these time intervals he's talking about? What are these little whiles of which Jesus speaks? Well, I think we've got two main options to potentially consider here. Is Jesus saying, in a little while I will die and be buried at which time you will not see me. And then, a little while after that, I will be raised again and you will see me. Or, is Jesus saying, in a little while I will ascend to the Father and leave this world and you will not see me. And then, after a little while, I will return to judge the living and the dead and then you will see me. Now both of those things, both of those ways of constructing what Jesus is saying here are obviously true, and have plenty of biblical support. The question then is simply, 
the question of what Jesus is asserting here. Is the fact that they would not see him due to his death and burial? Or is it due to his ascension to the Father? Is the fact that they would see him again due to his resurrection? Or is it due to his second coming? Now when Jesus saw that they were deliberating about this, he said to them, he elaborated a little bit more in verses 20 through 22. In verse 20, he tells them that they would weep and lament and grieve, that the world would rejoice. Evidently speaking of this time during which they would not see him, they would grieve. The world would rejoice. They hated him, so they'd be happy that he was gone. But, he says, that the disciples' grief would turn to joy. Why would it turn to joy? It was because, as he had said earlier in verse 16, a little while again and you will see me. Verse 21, he likens the disciples' grief and subsequent joy to the condition of a woman in labor. She has pain, but after the birth of the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish because of joy that a child has been born into the world. And then verse 22, he makes the comparison explicit. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Now, even with all of that being said, Jesus isn't completely explicit, is he, about what this little while is of which he is speaking. Now, I would lean toward thinking that he is speaking of his going away from them at his death and burial, which would be to their grief, and then his coming back as being in reference to his resurrection, in which their grief would turn to joy. And I think that this was the the same direction that he was pointing back in chapter 14, verse 19, when he said to them there, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. This was in reference to the, the time after his resurrection. After his resurrection, the disciples saw him. The witnesses whom he had chosen beforehand were witnesses of his resurrection. They saw him. But the world did not. And the, the sorrow and joy contrast that Jesus puts forward here also, I think, fits with his death and resurrection, respectively. We find later in John chapter 20, verse 20, that after the resurrection, the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. The resurrection was a cause of, of great joy. Joy which would not be taken away from them. The words of verse 22 echo the old Greek translation of Isaiah 66, 14, of the great joy that would come to God's people. In Isaiah 66, 14, we read, Then you will see this, and your heart will be glad, and your bones will flourish like new grass, and the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but he will be indignant toward his enemies. The resurrection of Jesus brought great joy to his disciples. And praise God that this joy is not simply limited to the eleven or to those other witnesses who had seen the risen Christ. The joy of Christ risen from the dead belongs to all of God's people. And therefore we find in 1 Peter 1.8 that Peter says to believers who had never seen Christ, he said, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice greatly with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And if you look through the New Testament, you will see indeed that joy is a defining characteristic of what it means to be a Christian. In Romans 14, 17, Paul said that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
being a Christian, it's not about what you eat or what you drink, but it is about righteousness, having the righteousness of Christ. It's about peace, having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is about joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy, we know from Galatians 5.22, is a fruit of the Spirit. It is even given as a command in 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. It's even given as a double command, if you want to call it that, Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. And Paul, of course, was writing that even from prison. So the resurrection of Jesus would replace the grief of the apostles and bring them joy, a joy which Jesus said that nothing could take it away from them. And this joy then is likewise to characterize us as the people of Christ. It's a fruit of the Spirit. We're commanded to rejoice. Joy is an important part of being a Christian. So then you might ask, and rightly so, what is joy? Well, joy has has been defined as a a holy cheerfulness or as an attitude of delight and security and comfort which we have as we trust in God. This is the, the holy cheerfulness, this attitude of delight and comfort that comes from knowing God and knowing the blessedness of the forgiveness of sins, knowing that we are reconciled to God through Christ, that we are counted righteous by faith alone. David speaks in Psalm 51, 12 of the joy of your salvation, the joy of the Lord's salvation, joy that comes in knowing that we are saved by the Lord. And this joy would become the disciples' proper possession at the resurrection of Jesus. At first, it would be the the joy of knowing that their Lord and Master was no longer dead, but that He was raised from the grave, even though immediately they didn't understand all of the implications of what that meant. But surely that initial joy would grow, would grow deeper as they came to understand just what Jesus' death and resurrection meant for salvation. And this joy would not be taken away from them. This holy cheerfulness, this attitude of security and comfort as we trust in God is rightly ours as well if we are trusting in Christ. It's ours through, through knowing the Lord Jesus and abiding in him and obeying him. Jesus had said earlier, as we saw several weeks ago, John 15, 9 through 11, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. And by nature, we're inclined to rejoice in those things that make us happy. We rejoice in close relationships with family and friends. We rejoice in a good meal or a beautiful day or when circumstances work out nicely for us. We rejoice in little children, the funny and sweet things that they say and do. These kinds of things bring a sort of joy to us, the moments of happiness that we, that we treasure. But we all know that life in a fallen world It's hard. We all know that we are sinners and we suffer the consequences from our sins. We know that other people are sinners and sometimes we suffer as the result of their sins. And sometimes we suffer from things that are not directly tied to any specific sins but are kind of just the downstream consequences of living in a fallen world, kind of the downstream consequences of a world of sin and death. We live in the world that Paul described in Romans 8.22 
when he said that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And then he goes on and he says, and not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the spirits, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is the fallen world. Creation is groaning, and we do too, because of the fallen world in which we live. So Peter says in 1 Peter 1.6 that now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, or perhaps it could be translated by various temptations. We are, as, as one man expressed it, so often ruffled and discomposed by one cross accident or another. Isn't that the way life works? We're so often ruffled and discomposed by some unhappy accident, so it appears. It looks like an accident. Obviously, it's all under the sovereign hand of God. And so the question then is, how do we rejoice? How do we live in joy in Christ in a world like that, in a world in which we are groaning? Well, it is then that we have to keep the magnitude of the work of Christ on our behalf in mind. We have to keep the glory of the gospel in mind. What is this work of Christ? And what are these glories of the gospel? Well, the work of Christ and the glory of the gospel is that Christ came to earth, came to seek and to save what was lost, that our Jesus had the authority to lay down his life and the authority to take it up again. And he did lay down his life freely on the cross and he did take it up again when he rose from the dead three days later. To remember the magnitude of the gospel that Christ is our great Passover lamb for us who shed his blood for us so that the wrath of God would, would pass over and be removed from us and placed on him instead. We remember him as our sacrifice. And likewise, we remember that he is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first and the best. He guarantees the resurrection of all who are his, who will be raised like him when he returns. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1.20, as many as are the promises of God in him, that is, in Christ, they are yes. All that God has promised to his people is carried out for us in Christ, is won for us and accomplished for us by Christ. This is the glory of the gospel. Apart from these truths and faith in them, we would be without hope and without God in the world, we would have no reason at all for any holy cheerfulness, would we? There would be no delight or comfort or security in the Lord if it were not for Christ and what he has accomplished for us. Our Jesus is the prophet like Moses, whom God raised up from among his brothers to speak the word of God to them. In fact, Christ himself is the word from the Father who has revealed the Father to us. As we were studying in Sunday school this morning, Christ is the greatest son of David who has conquered our enemies and established a lasting peace for us. We heard in Sunday school about how wonderful it was, this, this reign of Solomon in terms of, of having this, this peace established for the, the nation of Israel. Him riding into Jerusalem on a, on a mule in 1 Kings chapter 1. But if there, was, if there was peace under Solomon, the cracks were pretty nigh visible under the surface. Solomon had lots of sinful problems, but our Lord Jesus does not. And our Jesus is not only a king, he's also a priest, 
according to the order of Melchizedek, a priest king. As king, Christ reigns seated at the right hand of God and he rules now even in the midst of his enemies. As a priest, he is the mediator between God and man because he himself is both God and man. Like the other high priests, Jesus was taken from among men and as a man, he himself was subject to weakness and knows how to deal gently with us. But though he suffered the infirmities that are common to men and was tempted in all things as we are, yet he was without sin. As such, he is our, our intercessor, such that if anyone sins, he is our advocate with the fathers, what John tells us, First John chapter 2. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous. As God, he is almighty to save us. This is the glory of the gospel. This is who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished for us. When David was in the midst of some kind of trouble, he said in Psalm 4-7, You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. You see, David's making a bit of a comparison there. If we treasure and rejoice in the things of earth, these momentary and fleeting, ever-changing things that are before our eyes, how much more then should we rejoice in the Lord? in the security and the safety that comes in knowing him. How much more should we rejoice in our Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Since Jesus never changes, and since his work is accomplished for us and is secure and will endure and abide for all eternity, they provide us with a reason for rejoicing always. Obviously, it seems easy to rejoice in the Lord when times are good, But if we accurately consider the glories of Christ and the certainty of salvation and the eternal happiness of all who believe, that gives us reason enough to rejoice even in the worst of circumstances. Be it sickness, stress, the heartache of betrayal, difficult family relationships, persecution for the cause of Christ, or even death. Even when these things confront us. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our sins are forgiven and we are secure in Christ. In all of these things we can and ought to rejoice because in all of them we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Even when the dark hours come, joy can be ours if we are in Christ. We can be cheerful even in the face of sickness and suffering and death. We can rejoice with this holy cheerfulness because we have the comfort of being in Christ, the comfort of knowing that In all things, God is working for the good of those who love him. We have the security of belonging to Jesus who has the keys of death and of Hades. And this means that we can be joyful in the Lord even in the worst of times. We can delight ourselves in the Lord even when it seems that we have nothing else to delight in, nothing else to rejoice in, no one else to turn to. God has promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 1, that in these various trials that distress us, these things have come upon us so that the proof of our faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These trials that come upon us as believers come for our good, to test our faith, so that it may be found to result in praise glory and honor at the coming of Christ. 
And so when those things come upon us, we have to turn our minds once again to the glory of Christ and of what he has accomplished for us. We need to know, as we read from Nehemiah chapter 8 this morning, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy that is ours through the Lord makes us strong. Knowing God like this and rejoicing in God through Christ is an empowering force that is operative regardless of circumstances. Jesus says here in verse 22, I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Now, Zophar wasn't right about everything in the book of Job, but he was correct to say, as he did say in Job 20, verses 4 and 5, Do you know this from of old, from the establishment of man on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless is momentary? Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away, is what the hymn writer said. But no one can take the joy of a Christian away from him. Our sins and the temptation and tribulation of the world and the assaults of Satan may keep us sometimes from being as joyful as we ought to be. But even then, our joy remains because Christ and his truth abide forever. And so, one question for you to consider this morning is whether or not you know anything of this joy of the Lord. This joy of knowing the resurrected Christ and knowing not simply that he is raised from the dead, but knowing all of the glorious truths of the gospel that come to us as a result of Christ's resurrection. There are perhaps some of you who know this full well. Maybe you have endured trials that others of us can only imagine, and yet your faith and hope and love are as bright as ever. If merely human wisdom was applied to your circumstances, all would lead you to despair. But yet through tears and broken hearts, you continue on trusting Christ and looking more to Him. If that be you, you are living examples to us of what it looks like for the joy of the Lord to be your strength. May God be praised. This is the work of His Spirit, and this is to the glory of God. This is to the good of your souls, and this is to the edification of the church. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Christ has given you joy by his resurrection and all that he has accomplished for you, and it will never be taken away from you. Now, there are perhaps others among us whose joy has grown dim and whose strength has diminished along with it. Maybe you've known the joy of the Lord in the past, and yet now you would willingly join with William Cowper in his hymn where he said, Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is that soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? Maybe you find yourself in a time when all around you seems dark and gloomy. You feel little joy and less strength. Christian friend, if that describes you this morning, let me say a few things to you. First of all, all that I have to offer you is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes discouragement can be multifactorial. Sometimes depression can be multifactorial. Sometimes it's a spiritual problem. Sometimes it's a physical problem. Sometimes it may be a, a mental or psychological problem. And so we can't treat all problems as if they are spiritual problems. If I were to have heart disease and some of you were to say, well, Neil, just, just repent of your sins and the heart disease will go away, that wouldn't fix the problem, would it? And so the, the point that I'm, I'm trying to make is that our discouragement is not always 
caused by sin, but it can be caused by sin. And so we need to understand that, first of all. And so if you fall and pray to some sin, repent of it, confess it, there is mercy and grace and forgiveness for you in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no need to continue on in weakness and despondency. Perhaps some of you have just simply grown cold and callous to the good news of the gospel. And if that's you, then confess that too and stir up your mind by way of remembrance. Think through this, this plan of salvation, these great truths about Christ that we have been considering this morning. One man from olden times said that a glimpse of Christ would do an angel good, much more a sinner. So look to Christ and think upon him. And let me add here by by way of a caveat that Christians get discouraged. They really do. Christians get depressed, really. And sometimes, as I said, this is a direct result of our sins. Sometimes it is a chastisement from God because of sin, but not always. And so here's what I don't want to happen. I don't want a discouraged Christian leaving here after hearing a sermon about joy more discouraged. I don't want a depressed Christian leaving here more depressed because you've heard a sermon about the joy of the Lord, the joy that should fill our hearts as a result of Christ's resurrection and what he has accomplished for us, joy which no one will be able to take from you. I don't want you leaving here more depressed because of that. Again, depression and discouragement is is a complex and multifactorial issue. Sometimes the problem is spiritual, but not always. Sometimes the problem can be in our minds. Sometimes it can be a physical problem in our bodies that is bringing on the discouragement or depressions. Real Christians can and do struggle with these things. And in a sermon where we've been looking at joy and rejoicing in the Lord that should characterize us as Christians, I don't want to belittle or to disregard that because if I did belittle it and disregard it, that could perhaps serve to make the problem worse. And I don't want that. And if you feel that that any of that that I'm describing characterizes you this morning, I won't stand up here and say that I have a quick fix for you, because I don't. But what I would counsel you to do is to spend some time in the Psalms. It's been said that the psalmists were as messed up as we are and were crying out to God. And if you read the Psalms, I think you will find that that is indeed true. So let me, let me just give you a few psalms to, uh, to look at if this describes you. You can look at Psalm 13. You can look, look at Psalm 42, Psalm 43, Psalm 73, Psalm 143. Again, I'll, I'll run through those numbers again. 13, 42 and 43, 73, and 143. Probably the darkest psalm in all of the Psalter is Psalm 88. As you read the Psalms, especially those, some of those that I've just mentioned, observe the, the raw emotions of the psalmist and their nerves as they poured out themselves in prayer to God. And you can do likewise. You can imitate their prayer, but I also want you to imitate their faith in God. Because David and the other psalmists knew that whatever their problem was, the right thing to do was to pour out their hearts to God and find their comfort in Him. Psalm 94, 19 is particularly helpful and beautiful in this regard. The psalmist says there, When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Isn't that beautiful? When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. 
And just to, uh, just to see how this works, I direct your attention quickly and briefly to Psalm 77. So why don't you, why don't you turn there with me, if you would, to Psalm 77, and we'll, we'll see how this, this played out with, uh, with Asaph here in Psalm 77. You can see in the, the opening verses there of Psalm 77 his, his heart's trouble as he, as he cries out to God. He uh, says there in verse 2, In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. In the night my hand was stretched out and without weariness. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. He's disturbed when he remembers God. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. You have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I've considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my mouth and my spirit ponders. You starting to think now? Starting to ask some questions? Look at the questions in verse 7 and following. Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious, or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. It seemed to him that the right hand of the Most High had changed, though he hadn't. Then look at what he says in verses 11 on down. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength to the peoples. You have, by your power, redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. And so he, his heart is filled with trouble. But what does he do? He turns to the Lord. He starts asking these questions, like those questions there in verses 7 through 10. And the answer is no, that the Lord will not reject forever. He will not fail to be compassionate and merciful. He has not forgotten to be gracious. His promise will not come to an end forever. His loving kindness has not ceased. And so our psalmist asks these questions, and he turns his mind to the Lord and to what the Lord has done. And this is the way, when we find ourselves as Christians and we're discouraged or depressed, this is the way in which we ought to direct our minds. Now, there may be some other things that we need to do as well. Maybe we need to start eating better, get out for exercise, whatever the case may be. But this is what we ought to be doing spiritually when we find ourselves discouraged, is asking these kind of questions and seeking answers from them from the Word of God, not from our mere reasoning and surmising. This is where we need to be directing our minds to. So I've spoken to, spoken to Christians who are joyful. I've spoken to Christians who are, are struggling with their joy. But there may be some of you here who have never known this joy of the Lord. You do not know the joy of Christ the risen. You have never yet come to him for salvation. Let me just say to you this morning that there is no true or lasting joy on earth or after this earth apart from from Christ. And so in the preaching of the gospel, I offer you Christ today. I ask you to hear his word as he himself has said it. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn away from your sins and trust in Christ who has come to earth and died for us on the cross for our sins and was risen three days later 
for us so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. This alone is where joy is to be found. Joy that will never ultimately be taken away from us. And this brings us then to our second point for this morning, which is ask in Jesus' name. And we find this in verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. Now when Jesus refers to the day in which they would no longer question him about anything, he seems to be referring in particular to the time after his resurrection and ascension and the the sending of the Spirit. He had spoken up in verse 13 of how the, the Spirit would guide the apostles into all truth, and when that happened, they would not need to ask him any more questions. The Spirit himself would be guiding them into the truth. Now, if you, if you think about the, the apostles in the, the course of the Gospels, they asked a lot of questions, didn't they? Matthew Henry rightly observed that the, that the disciples had asked some ignorant questions, some ambitious questions, some distrustful ones, some impertinent ones, some curious ones, but after the Spirit was poured out, nothing of this. Questioning ceased after Pentecost when the Spirit came down. Now, even though their questioning of Jesus would cease after his ascension and the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, nevertheless, they would still have needs for which they could and should ask for divine assistance. And so he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Now let's notice a few things here in these two verses. We should uh, consider what it is to pray in Jesus' name and how we are made joyful in them. Now we've already had occasion in this series on the Gospel of John to consider what is meant when Jesus speaks of asking the Father in his name and of what qualifications must be understood when Jesus says, ask and you will receive. But inasmuch as it is here in the text and it is very important, we do well to recall that when Jesus speaks of praying in his name, we need to be clear we're not talking about a magical incantation or just tacking on in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of a prayer as if those were the magic words that guaranteed that we would receive whatever we may ask. That is not at all what Jesus is telling us here. To pray in Jesus' name is to implicitly acknowledge that we're completely unworthy for God to answer our prayers based on anything in us or anything that we deserve, because we deserve nothing good from God's hand. If you were to call upon God in the name of any other person other than Jesus, there would be no reason for God to hear those prayers and answer them. All other people are sinners. Our Lord Jesus is the only one in whose name we may ask because when we pray in the name of Jesus, we're asking on the basis of his merits. We're relying on him as our mediator, as the one by whom we have access to God the Father in prayer. None of us are sufficient to claim anything for ourselves in prayer. We come by the name of Christ who has gone before us into heaven and we come through 
Jesus. Now, another thing that we need to, to see here is that when Jesus promises that we will receive the, the answer to our prayers, we need to understand that this is not a, simply a blank check for us to ask anything we may want. Lord, let me go home and find a million-dollar check in my mailbox. Amen, right? This is, not, this is not what Jesus is talking about here. Again, we're relying on Jesus, and we are asking those things that are in accordance with the will of God. And we need to, to keep in mind the, the entire context of Scripture and what it tells us about the kind of prayers that God will answer. We find in Psalm 66, 18, that if we regard wickedness in our heart, the Lord will not answer, the Lord will not hear. Jesus says in John 15, 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This, these promises about prayer are for those who are abiding in Christ, who's, uh, in whom Christ's words are abiding. We find in 1 John three twenty two that whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. These are, these are promises for people who are, who are walking with the Lord, who are seeking not just random whims that they think will be good for them, but rather what is actually good for them in accordance with the will of God. And so we find in 1 John 5, 14 and 15 that this is the confidence that which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked of him. Our prayers are answered if they are in accordance with the will of God and are asking for those things that are truly good. And so we're told in Psalm 84, 12, that the Lord gives grace and glory. No good things does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And we need to recognize that the good things are from God's perspective, not from ours. Sometimes we think that something is good and so we ask for it, but the Lord actually has something that is better for us. Maybe the good that we are asking for that we think is good would be something that would destroy us were we to have it. But the Lord knows what is best for us. And likewise, our, we're taught in, prayer, in Scripture that our prayers must be persistent. Luke 18, the parable of the unjust judge. Jesus told that parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. There's to be a persistence in prayer. We're called to be devoted to prayer. Colossians 4.2, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. We're commanded, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So the point is that we need to understand this promise about the answer to our prayers where Jesus says, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. This is not about asking for million dollar checks. This is asking for those things which God has told us in Scripture that are actually good for us. This is what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And this is what it means when Jesus says, ask and you will receive. But notice there at the end of verse 24, the end result of asking in Jesus' name and then receiving the answer from the Father. Jesus says this is so that your joy may be made full. And we've already considered at some length this morning this subject of the joy which the people of God have in Christ we need to understand here also that asking in Jesus' name and our reception of those things for which we ask from God the Father is a matter of joy. And isn't this true? Haven't you experienced this? 
when we ask those things of God in the name of Christ in accordance with His will, does it not bring us great joy to see those very prayers answered, to see God do the very thing that we asked Him in the name of Christ to do? When we receive the answer to our prayers, we rightly sense that God is being gracious to us. We don't deserve anything good from God's hands. But Jesus told us to ask in His name, and when we ask in Jesus' name and in accordance with God's will, and we receive the very thing for which we ask, we know that God is very good to us. We know that God is very kind to us. We know that we didn't deserve at all the good thing that God gave to us. And then, if our hearts are acting as they ought, our hearts are filled with joy and gratitude. And so in light of this, brothers and sisters, let's devote ourselves to prayer, keeping alert and with an attitude of thanksgiving, as Paul said in Colossians 4.2. Let's pray for the spread of the gospel. Pray that the Lord would open doors for its proclamation so that those who have opportunities to speak would have the boldness to do so and that the message would be made clear. Paul requested prayer for this in Colossians 4, 3 and 4 and Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ that they would be built up, that they'd be edified in the truth and that our lives would reflect the great work of Christ which we profess. This is a prayer that is in accordance with God's will, that his people would be sanctified. Think of 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God, your sanctification. If you're praying for sanctification for God's people, this is a prayer that God will answer. Let's pray for those who seem to be straying from the truth, that they would be brought back, as you find in 1 John chapter 5, 16. Let's be praying for our children, for the children of our church. Let's be praying for all men and for those who are in authority, that we may lead tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. These are the kinds of requests which we are supposed to be bringing before God, and these are the kinds of requests which God answers. And the Lord answers, the Lord's answers to these prayers then bring us joy. Jesus says, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. And so let's ask and let's wait patiently upon the Lord to do what is good in his sight. And then let's rejoice when we receive the answer from him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the great fact of Christ's resurrection and his coming again to his disciples for their joy. And Father, we thank you that though we did not see Jesus on that first Easter Sunday or in that period of 40 days in which he appeared to his disciples, nevertheless, we believe in him and we rejoice and the joy that you have given us. Father, we are thankful for Christ and we pray that you would continue to help us. Lord, help us that we would faithfully obey that command to rejoice always. Lord, even when it's hard, help us to remember the glories of the gospel. Help us to look back to the truths of your word and turn our minds to the great work of Christ on our behalf. Father, we ask that you would help us in prayer. We know that Often we are sluggish and cold when it comes to prayer. We do not always ask for those things which are in accordance with your will. And so, Father, we pray that you would stir us up, that we would love 
what you love, that we would desire what you desire, that we would abide with Christ and that his words would abide in us so that we may ask and receive and that our joy would be made full. We ask your grace, your blessing, and your help to be upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.